How's everyone doing this morning? Afternoon. Yes, still morning. Ah, excellent, excellent, excellent. For the love of God. For the love of God. Now I need you to just tell somebody under your mask, socially distanced. <laughs> for the love of God. For the love of God. So this month, we're talking about love. Now, when it comes to love, so many people have diff different um, interpretations, definitions. But this uh, title, For the Love of God, is uh, almost like an expression. So when I heard this, I was like, for the love of God. You know, somebody says it when uh, something happens. Oh, for the love of God, stop. But then when I heard it, and I was thinking, hold on. Even of this is a statement in itself. I do this for the love of God. I come to church for the love of God. I love my wife sacrificially for the love of God. So when I was thinking of this topic and then we, you know, we shared amongst the young adults, we said, okay, this is a really excellent topic to discuss. All right, let's pray. Father, Lord, we bless you and we give you the glory, O oh Lord. We bless your name. There is no one like you. And we say, oh Lord, may the words, oh Lord, that come from you this morning, this afternoon, may be edifying. We pray, oh Lord, that the people that are listening, even on the live stream and also in this building, will hear the heart of the message. We come against um, things that would cause them to be contentious with what is about to be said. We pray, oh Lord, that as, we, as, we, as you speak, oh Lord, through me, that you, Lord, will give a word in season and you will cause those to come back to you. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. All good, man. Praise the Lord. So during the week, we, uh, on the midweek services, uh, we were talking about love. And uh, through the whole month, again, we're talking about love. So if you're on the live stream, welcome. Um, during our midweek services, we're going to be talking about love. We're going to talk about like, four types of love. So on Monday, we're talking about uh, agape. This week, it's Valentine's weekend. It's Valentine's week. Uh, so we're going to be talking about eros, the sensual and romantic type of love. So, you know, it's going to be about relationships, marriages, all that sort of good stuff. So, yeah, do, do, do come on and join us online and also in the church. Please do attend. And then, um, obviously, the weeks after that, we're going to continue talking about love. And it might seem, okay, I know about love, I know about love. But then we have to come and understand, okay, do we really know? what love is and what love means. Sometimes it seems that like it's just a four-letter word and it's just giving out without a weight or a meaning. And sometimes it's given without any sort of actions or any sort of things behind it. We say sentences, oh, well, yeah, just love them, just love them. And it's good to say, just love them. But what does that actually mean? What does it actually mean to just love them? So we're just going to go through some definitions. We're going to go through and break down the word love. We're going to break down certain situations and certain circumstances. And actually, what does God say about love? So if you want to turn your Bibles to 1 John 4, verse 16. You can get that on the board. One John 4, 16. And the book of John is amazing. It's a, it's a book of intimacy. 
It challenges Christians to understand the love and it challenges their behaviors, it challenges their practices, and also challenges their relationship with God. So when you do have time and you are reading the word and you look at John to understand the whole narrative of what John in the first book of John is saying, is really understanding the intimacy between man and God and how that intimacy affects other people. Okay, verse 16. And we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God. And God remains in him. Like I said, we have a society where God isn't love. And actually love is a God. Let me say that again. We have a society where actually God isn't love. But love is perceived as a God. Where you can do whatever you like in the name of love. And the love that you give or the love that you want to receive is very subjective to whoever they feel, whoever, what they define it to be. But as we know as believers, we have to come back to the word of God. We have to come back to what does God say. And the word of God says that God is love. So let's define love biblically. Biblically love, love is the decision to compassionately, righteously, righteously sacrificially pursue or seek the well-being of another person. Biblical love can also be seen as an act of the will accompanied by emotions that lead to an action on behalf of its object. That's what word of love, that's what love is. Sacrificial, it's righteous, it's compassionate. And I'm doing things out of the, almost the unconditional love I have for something. So even if this object that I want to project my love on doesn't like me, that doesn't mean I stop projecting my love. Because sometimes in life when we see somebody or someone does something, you may love them until they do you wrong. And when they do do you wrong, your love may not be the same. And then it comes into question, did you really love them? And why were you projecting your love on them? Subconsciously, we may think we wanted something from them, hence why we project our love to them. And when we're not receiving what we want, then we stop our love. But then we come to this definition again. The decision to compassionately, righteously, sacrificially pursue or seek the well-being of another. The act of a will accompanied by emotions that lead to the actions on behalf of its object. Does, does that make sense? Okay, let's go to 1 John chapter 3. Verse 11 to 19. So go to verse 11 first. 1 John 3. And we'll go to verse 11. Amazing. You got that on the board. Okay, we're going to read through that. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we shall love one another. Unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder his brother? because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers. If the world hates you, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. This one, uh, the one who, we love our brothers, the one who does not, not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. 
and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we've come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our life for our brothers. If anyone in this world, if anyone has this world, world's good and sees his brother in need but shuts off his compassions for him, how can, he's, how can God's love reside in him? Little children, we, not, we must not love the world. Ugh. Little children, we must not love in word or speech, but in deed and truth. Last one. That is how we will know we are of the truth and his will convinces our hearts to be in his presence. So this verse is, is, is saying the evidence of your love is the fact of you're doing good things for others. You're doing it indeed and not just saying this stuff. Because John is talking to these people and he's saying, okay, you say you love your brothers and you say you love your sisters, but you go around and you see someone in need and you go be like, oh, that's a bit mad, you know, but yeah, I love them still. And then you keep it moving. But then John is coming to say, hold on, if you really love your brother, if you really love your sister, when you see them in need, you're going to do something. When you see that they haven't been able to pay their bills and they're complaining, you're going to pattern them and say, you know what, here's that hundred pound hold that I don't, don't worry about it. But instead, sometimes these people were like, you know what, it's, it's unfortunate, you know, it is what it is. But sometimes we have to understand that this is what John is saying, that the symptoms of your love for God will be projected on others. So it's like somebody who has a bellyache and they say to the doctor, doctor, you know, I really got a bellyache. And the doctor says, OK, so what's happened? He's like, oh, you know, like my knees are hurting, my back hurts and my ankles are swelling up. And the doctor's like, hold on. You said you got a bellyache. It's like, yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, hold on. So the symptoms of you having a bellyache would be you're not able to eat properly. Maybe you're hunched over. But then how can you claim to have a bellyache when your ankles are hurting and when your knees are hurting? In the same way, how can you claim to love God when you don't project these things and you don't go do good deeds onto your brother? So this is the same way. This is what John is saying. The evidence of your love will be shown through to others. And I love the fact that it says through good deed and truth. Because in this world, there's loads of people, good people, quote unquote, that are doing good things. Very good things. Even sometimes even good, better things than even the church. But the scripture, if we go to, I think, uh, is it 17? Go to 17. Verse 17. Okay, go to 18. It says that, but you must do it in deed and in truth. So that's the thing when it comes to us, we do it in truth as well. We know who's the truth. Jesus is the truth. So we do it because of Jesus, not because it's good. And yeah, am I trying to say, you know, uh, doing good things is bad? No, 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 no. But sometimes when we do good things, the motive behind it may not be godly. So that's why it's saying do it in deed and in truth. Even in your thoughts, like, and I challenge you, not just in your deed and, in, you know, in doing good things, it's also in your thoughts. Because sometimes doing good things, and then you think, you know what, I'll give them this because they look like they need it. And, you know, this is better than nothing. And then we may feel sorry for somebody. And then we may feel, you know, uh, at least they have something. 
But we have to understand even our thoughts have to be good in the sense of where when I give it to them, I'm giving it to them with love, not with a contentiousness, not to uh, understand that I feel pity for someone. So that's why I'm doing it. So, you know, you're glad you got something, then nothing. We have to understand that our thought process even has to be good. And when we are given our attitude of giving to people, attitude of doing something, when we're serving others, when we're loving others, in all these things, it's not just a deed, it's in truth and in our thoughts. Do you give so you can get back? If somebody doesn't say thank you, how is your heart towards that person? I'll be honest. I'll be like, right, I'll give you something. You're not even thankful. But then even in that, God is asking, so why did you actually give? Because when we go back to the scriptures and we look at Jesus, he gave his life for people who don't even want him. They don't want him. They might not have even grown up to know who he is. They have different perceptions of Jesus. Sometimes that's because of us. We're meant to be Christ ambassadors, but the way we behave in deed and in truth doesn't reflect the God that we serve. So if you cannot give to me when I need it, why would I serve the God that you want me to come to? Does that make sense? So not only giving in deed and in truth, understand your actions and the motives behind it. Challenge yourselves. I was on a, uh, a live stream the other day and there was a, a guy who was talking about a cheerful giving. And his understanding and definition of cheerful giving is, can you give without seeing somebody else's reaction? Can you give without giving somebody a reaction? So what they do is sometimes they go into a restaurant, him and his wife, they pray, and they say, God, who do you want us to bless today? And they see a couple, they see somebody, and they call the manager and say, hey, pay for that person. And they make sure as they, soon as they pay, they get out. They don't want to see the person's reaction. Because sometimes even when we do see things and it's, it makes us to be good and feel, yeah, that's good. And it's not a bad, necessarily a bad thing. But then if they aren't thankful and they say, oh, somebody paid for your meal. Oh, cool. Okay, cool. And they keep eating. You're like, hold on. Somebody random paid for your meal. And you're not even cheerful and happy. And it challenges your heart to say, okay, why do I actually give? That's why the word says give cheerfully. And understanding, you know, with, even with that word, we're like, okay, okay, I'm going to give here. I'm going to give there. Give cheerfully, happy, happy. But the way his definition switched it is, can I give in a sense of where my left hand doesn't know what my right hand is doing? Okay, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And we're going to go to verse 4 and 7. So obviously we talked about the definition of love. Again, I'll repeat it again. Is that act of the will accompanied by emotions that leads on to the behalf of its object. So not only knowing that we have to, love has to be seen in action and in truth. But especially when it comes to us Christians, love is the foundation of spiritual gifts. Love is the foundation of spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are something that are given to every believer, specifically to believers, Christians who believe and repented and believed in Jesus and received the gift of salvation and then the Holy Spirit. Spiritual gifts are given specifically to them when they receive salvation through grace, by grace, through faith. So obviously when it comes to spiritual gifts, we know uh, we've got ministry gifts, we've got manifestation gifts, we've got um, motivational gifts. Uh, so let's read this. Cool. Now there are different gifts, but the same spirit. But the same spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. 
And there are different activities, but the same God is active in everyone and everything. Last verse. A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person to produce what is beneficial. So like I said, we've got three different types of gifts. Your ministry gifts, so that's like your teachers, your evangelists, your prophets. We've got manifestation gifts, speaking in tongues, uh, word of knowledge, word of wisdom, interpretation of tongues. And then we've got motivational gifts. This is like your serving, your giving, your teaching, uh, your uh, loving, uh, not loving, your, uh, yeah, your giving, teaching, your motivational gifts. Now let's go to First uh, Corinthians 13. So that was like the next chapter after that. So Paul, in this chapter of First uh, Corinthians, he's talking to people, the Corinthians, who are very gifted in these spiritual gifts. But they are going around and doing so many things that they are quite proud in what they are doing. So when they were probably laying hands on somebody for them to be healed, they're thinking, okay, I'm the one who done it without giving God the glory. It's going around and it's very, very messy. And Paul is coming to say, okay, these are the gifts, but it's all from one spirit, from one God. Now let's go to verse one. Uh, can we get a drama, Tim? Are you able to come up very quickly? Now we read verse one. If I speak the languages of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am a, I am a sounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Next verse. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and if I have faith so I can move mountains but have love, I am nothing. Verse 3. If I donate all my goods to, to feed the poor, and if I give my body to be burnt and do not have love, I have gained nothing. So like I'm saying, Paul is saying that, that spiritual gifts, that love is the foundation of spiritual gifts. And even if we can prophesy, we can give and we can do all this stuff, but we have no love. We're like clashing symbols. Just play a, a something. I know it's a sweet, but just a just hit. And I want to give you the signal. I just want it to go crazy on the symbols. I don't want it to have any rhythm. Just go crazy on the symbols when I give you the signal. All right. So in life, we're marching like this, walking like this in pace. I give to somebody. I serve. And then when somebody doesn't say thank you, and then I get angry. It's just like clashing symbols. It's just noise. And that's how sometimes in life it seems. You may go around prophesying, praying for others, giving, and then you think, okay, I'm doing good stuff. But the Bible says, if you have no love, it sounds like this. Sounds like noise. And it's so, ugh, it's so loud. It's so, it's, it has no rhythm. Obviously, when we're doing praise and worship, and then obviously Tim is playing the kit, and it's going into rhythm and it's sounding nice. But as soon as he crashes the cymbals, there's no rhythm. It sounds so noisy. And that's how our lives will sound like if we have no love. That's how our lives sound like when we're able to pray over somebody and think that we gain the glory. That's how our lives sound like when we give and then we're expecting a thank you. That's how we, our lives sound like when we give unto church and then we're expecting pastor to say our name and say the amount. And if he doesn't, then I'm offended. Our lives sound like that so we have to understand that love is the foundation of all this stuff and why do we do these spiritual gifts so it's so some people do it in a sense of where 
we have to do it obviously for the beneficial of the body and for those to know who God is. But if you're doing it for admiration, if you're doing it so people can know that, yeah, I'm a powerful Christian, I know God, I'm close to God. There's very, very prideful people who use their gifts, but they have no character. They have no fruit. They're able to pray and prophesy, but they're rude. They're able to pray and prophesy, but they're not able to come to give, uh, they're not able to be loving at home. They have all these gifts, and then, uh, you know, and sometimes, especially in the evangelical and the charismatic movement, we elevate people with gifts rather than elevating people who have character. And once we understand that the character has to be the foundation of, obviously, when it comes to uh, fruit of the spirit, we know that love is the first fruit. And if that's the foundation, everything else on top will flow and flourish nicely. But then we forget and we think if this person is able to speak in tongues, prophesy, tell you all these good and mighty things, we think that it's fine. And we neglect the fact that, oh, yeah, you know, they are rude, but, you know, they're not perfect. Oh, yeah, you know, talk rude to his wife, but maybe it's the wife that has the issues, not the pastor. How can it be the man of God? How can it be the apostle? We have to go in these parts where we have to be able to distinguish the person's gift. We can't distinguish the person's gift and their character. It has to be, it has to be together. It has to be together. Thank you very much, man. It has to be together. Love has to be the foundation. Love is the foundation of a building. Love is the electricity in the lights. Love is the engine in a car. Love is everything inside these things. There's no point of a building looking nice and pretty, but when it rains, you see all the waterfront come through. There's no point of having a nice designer car, but then there's no engine to drive it from A to B. There's no point of having a designer lights, and then after that, there's no electricity to power it. Love is the foundation of all these things. Now, let's go to verse 4 of that same chapter. Okay. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love is not boastful. It's not conceited. Uh, next verse. Sorry. Does not act inappropriately, improperly. It is not selfish. It is not provoked. It doesn't keep any records of wrong. Next verse. We're going to go up to verse 8. Yeah. Finds no love, finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. Love bears all things, love believes all things, love hopes all things, love endures all things. And then love never ends. We'll just end it there. So we can see that love is all these things. And sometimes I like to challenge myself. If, we go, if you go to verse 4, if you replace love with yourself, if you replace the, the word love and put yourself there, are you these things? Todd, am I patient? Is Todd kind? Does Todd not envy when he sees somebody driving a big car and he feels like I've worked so hard and this person hasn't done anything but yet they're driving past? Is Todd boastful? Is Todd conceited? Next verse. Does Todd act improperly? Is Todd selfish? Is Todd provoked? Does Todd keep a record of wrongs? Now I challenge you, I challenge you at home. Replace the name love and put your name there. And if you can't see yourself as being kind, if you can't see yourself as being um, patient, 
then it's something for you to see, okay, do I really actually have love? Because this is what scripture says. Love is all these things. And if I don't have these things, then I need to check myself. Whoa. Devil is a liar. Still on? Okay, cool, cool, cool. So now if love is all these things, I need to check myself and see, am I all these things? And if I'm not, then I need to see, okay, hold on. What do I need to do in order to make sure that I am all these things? Because these are the characters of which one has to obtain. These are the characters of which love is saying it has to be. If I'm not patient, if I'm not kind, then there's a problem there. If you go to verse 11, verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I put away childish things. I find it interesting when Paul is talking about love, he links it to manhood. So I'm coming to say that love is actually a man thing. First, husbands, are you patient with your wives? Are you kind to your wives? Do you hold records against your wives? Love is a man thing. The Bible talks about men, husbands, love your wives and wives respect your husbands. So husbands, I'm challenging you. Are you these things? And God calls us men to be these things. And if we aren't, then we need to check ourselves again. Do I actually have love? And sometimes, you know, we've been polluted with the Greco-Roman understanding of love. And, you know, if it's lovey-dovey, then, you know, the Cupid is coming with his arrows. But then the scripture comes to say that there may be some elements of that, but that's not what love just is. And once we come to the understanding of where God is love and keep God in the center of love, all these other things flow from it. Okay, let's go to verse 13. Now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. So I have all the things that we talked about in terms of scripture, in terms of spiritual gifts, in terms of prophecy, in terms of character. Paul again is coming and, you know, telling us again that love is the thing that remains. Okay, cool. I think I still have a bit of time. We need to have a balanced view of love when it comes to sharing the gospel. There's a gospel that's out there that talks about love is very, just a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's very welcoming. It's not confrontational. It's quite passive. It's very, very tolerant and pleasing and it's affirming to everyone. But this type of gospel just preaches love, but it doesn't preach the gospel. Now, the thing is, the gospel is offensive in and of its nature. Yes, we love. Yes, we do deeds. Yes, we give to the poor. Yes, we do all these amazing things. But the gospel in and of itself is actually quite offensive to those who don't believe. And sometimes we need to understand that love is just, is, it isn't, the, isn't the stop to it, but it's actually the corridor to the gospel. Love is the corridor to the gospel. We have to be careful not to preach love and not the gospel. We have to be careful not to just stop at love. We have to be able to preach the gospel. So let's go to Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. This is Peter. When he was talking to, when him and, uh, I can't remember who he was with, but he was in uh, the Sanhedrin, and uh, he was caught, uh, brought before some high priests, some Pharisees, some Sadducees, uh, 
just brought before some high priests. And in that, they had to give a defend themselves, basically, because these guys were preaching Jesus. But then the Jews of those times think they were heretics. So this is a part of where Paul, um, Peter is saying, you see, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name given under heaven in which people must be saved. So even in this gospel that we preach, it is offensive. Because we're talking to somebody who's lived their life in another place in the world with another understanding, another doctrines of what their God and their beliefs are. And we're coming and saying, not only we believe you're wrong, but there's only one way to get into heaven. Do you know how offensive that is? It's very, very offensive to say that the way that you think you know things is actually wrong. It's through one person. Now, in our delivery, even though it may be tr- it is true in that the delivery in which it has to be projected has to be understanding. Delivery, deliver that in love. And many Christians just stop us just preaching the truth. I think that's it. But the word causes us, you know, we have to give it in truth and in love. Give this word in love. Understand that, hold on, just because we've grown up in a society where we know Jesus, there's somebody who hasn't. And when we give this word, even in its offense of it, they may not take it. They may not take it. And we have to be at least compassionate enough to know that, okay, I understand your viewpoints, but this is what the word says, but give it in a way that is loving. And then help them to understand, okay, have you considered who Jesus is and what he stood for and what he says? Some people say there is many ways and Jesus is just one of them. But if that's the case, let's look at what Jesus actually said. Let's go to John 14, verse 6. John 14, verse 6. Because that's what people say. It's okay, you have your way, I have my way. And we can live somewhat in peace and not be able to tell each other what our viewpoints are. And sometimes you get offended by a viewpoint instead of having a mature understanding and say, okay, that's your viewpoint. I don't necessarily agree, but that's fine. We can agree to disagree. But let me try and understand from your shoes. Who is this Jesus and what did he say? Jesus, that one, that particular way in which you say he is, he said, Jesus told them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So this particular way in which some people say, this person said he is the way. This Jesus said that he is the only way to get to heaven, to have salvation. So once we understand that, we're able to help them and understand that, listen, being good just isn't good enough. Doing good things is amazing, absolutely amazing. But to get to heaven, to get to the place to dwell where God is, there has to be some sort of criteria. You can't just say, okay, we're coming into a place there has to be, before you even travel, you need a passport. Before you get to certain buildings, you need credentials. What are the credentials to get into this place called heaven? You may think, oh, you know, we're just to be good. But what is good? Who defines the standard of good? Is it me? Is it you? Because my definition of good may be different to yours. And who's to say that yours is right and mine is wrong? And who's to say mine is right and yours is wrong? So if all of our definitions are clashing in terms of what is good, we need to go to somebody that's above us who can define what is good. And God defines what is good. God is the definition of good. He's the definition of perfect. 
Because the thing is, why I say that your good may not be good enough, some people may give to charity and give to the homeless. They think that's good. Some people may think that good, that uh, giving, to the giving to homeless isn't enough. You have to provide jobs for them and provide a place for them to stay in order for that to be good. And then another person might come and say, that's not even enough. You have to build a building and put these homeless people in, put them in a society in which they can flourish. So if the person who can only afford to give on a monthly basis to the homelessness, to the homeless, is doing what he can, and that's not good enough. How on earth are they going to reach that level of goodness? But then Jesus comes, God comes and he says, all these things, they're not good enough. No one is good. Even a person who builds a massive building and puts everybody in it, God is saying that is still not good enough. That is still not good enough. It still isn't. Believing in God just still isn't good enough. What is the evidence of your belief? There's loads of people that say, you know, I just believe in God. And it's okay, it's okay, fine. But then people have different interpretations of who God is. Even reading the Bible, people have different interpretations of who God is. We have to understand, okay, who is Jesus to you? Who is this person? Who is this person who 2,000 years ago, do you believe he actually died? Do you believe he resurrected? Because that's what our faith stands on. As the Bible says, if Jesus doesn't resurrect and he didn't raise from the dead, then we have nothing. And that is our strongest point. And there are many, many people around the world trying to defruit that. And they can't. Because it's not only historically found, there's so many eyewitness accounts that prove that he rose from the dead. So the Bible has come to say, like, look, being good isn't good enough. Just believing isn't good enough. It's humbling ourselves. To understand that, okay, if I can't be good and believing in a God isn't good enough, then what can I do? Understand that we're not good. We cannot get into heaven by our good works. But there's somebody who has done something for us so we can get into heaven. And his name is Jesus. He died for us. But we have to accept that and accept that we can't be good by ourselves. We need him in order to help us to be that standard of good in which God requires us. And the thing about love, love protects. Love snatches you from the fire. And there's a gospel that they don't want to preach. There's a gospel that they don't want to live out because it so, can be so, it is so offensive. But if I love somebody and they're in a fire, I'm not going to stand there and say, do, do you want me to come and save you? Do, do you want me to call a, a fire brigade? We're going to act. We're going to act on it and say, you know what? Listen, you need to come out of that fire. You need to come out. And the thing is, as well, when it comes to sometimes us Christians, we see somebody in need and we don't want to tell them necessarily the truth, to go close to them. In a sense of where, here's an analogy. Um, when a sheep is walking and the sheep falls in the mud, the shepherd will go on his knees and pick up the sheep and take him away. But when it comes to us Christians, when we see somebody say, I'm going to love them, and what we tend to do is we get a lasso, we throw it from a distance, we tie it around their neck and we try to pull them out. The mud represents the sin that people are in. And instead of being the hands and feet of Jesus that he calls us to be and go close and pick them up, we're too afraid to get close to the people that are ostracized, to get close to the people that are too controversial. And we stand afar and we throw it and then we pull them and we say, okay, we're telling them about Jesus. We're telling them about their sin. But what we actually do is grabbing them by the neck and we're pulling them out. But whilst we're pulling them out, we're killing them. 
because we're pulling them and thinking, I'm telling them what they're doing is wrong. Instead of going close to them, understanding, having compassion and see what level are they at and say, you know what? I know where you're at. I don't think this is good for you. Can I help you to move you up and show you to somebody who can clean you up? And once you show them to the person who can clean them up, that person who can clean you up is Jesus. Because the thing is, when somebody is, when that sheep is in the mud, they may not even realize they're in it. They don't realize they're dirty. Because sometimes we look at others and we see they're, they're in the mud, but they're enjoying it. And not only they're enjoying it, we see that, listen, you are dirty. We need to show you to someone that's clean. And then we judge them for messing around in the mud without understanding that, listen, that's all they've known. This is their understanding. And we have to be the hands and feet of Jesus, loving people and going close, embracing them, showing and lifting them up. But sometimes we behave like the priests and the Levites where we don't want to get our clothes dirty. And we leave it for the Samaritan to come and do the job that the Christians were meant to be doing. So, as I close, understand that love above all else is God. We live in a society where God isn't love anymore, but love is perceived as a God. We live in a society where Christians just want to say they love, but don't have the understanding of the deeds to do what it requires to love. We live in a society where Christians, some Christians, I'm generalizing, but saying some Christians forget that love is the foundation of the spiritual gifts. Love is the foundation of our faith. We live in a society where Christians aren't exhibiting love, aren't exhibiting love in the sense of where love is patient, love is kind, love is not boastful. We live in a society where we try to preach love but not preach the gospel. We forget that it's offensive. We forget that we have to come to a place where we can acknowledge these people are where they are, embrace them, and show them to somebody who can let them to be clean. And if you're out there in the auditorium or also out in the, uh, on a live stream, I just want to implore you to understand and know who this Jesus is. Jesus is like a, a person outside your house. And your house is representing who you are in your life. And Jesus is knocking on the door and asking, can I come in? And you're in your house thinking, I can't allow this person to come in. Do you know who he is? No, I need to clean up my house here. Um, I need to get these wallpapers down. And you're embarrassed of your life. And you sometimes may feel like, I can't let this Jesus come in. I need to clean up everything before he comes in. Just as if somebody of prominence comes into your house and you know they're coming, you clean up your house, you hoover, you do all you can. But Jesus is saying, don't worry about cleaning your house. Don't worry about turning down the wallpapers. Don't worry about fixing the kitchen sink. Don't worry about cleaning the toilets. I've got everything in my hands. I've got the mop. I've got the bucket. I've got the hand sanitizers. I've got the building stuff. I've even got a skip outside to help you take away all your burdens and all your guilt and all your shame and put it in the skip where you won't need to see it ever again. And that's what Jesus is saying. He is knocking on your door. And if you want to let him in, he's more than able to come in. But he's not going to force his way in. He's knocking and saying, will you let me in? Will you let me change your life? But you have to be in a place where you're humble enough to say that, listen, my house is messy and I actually need your help, Jesus. 
And that's what we call repentance. Understanding that, listen, I can't do this thing by myself. I'm sorry I thought I could clean my house by myself. I'm sorry I can have the, uh, the things in my house and I think I can do it all by myself. But I'm asking you, Jesus, to come in. Now, if that's you, just asking Jesus, come into my life. Jesus, come into my life. I'm ashamed of my house. I'm ashamed of the way the things are looking in my life. I'm ashamed of the way that I feel like I can do this thing and my house is in disarray. But if you say who you are, and if you who you are, and what Todd said, come into my house, come into my life and clean it up. So Father Lord, we just pray for people out there who have heard this message. And we pray in the name of Jesus that you will visit them where they are. Because God, your word says, oh Lord, that we should come as we are. And Lord, we're sorry, oh Lord, there's even believers and Christians that cause people and demonize people for their sin and where they are. We even repent right now and say, Lord, we're sorry. Help us to love others. Help us to love those. And we pray, oh Lord, those on the live stream, those in the, in the building right now, we pray, oh Lord, that they will give their lives to you, Jesus. Have a relationship with you, an intimate one in which John talks about. Amen. And here's another thing. As Jesus comes into your life, he's bringing somebody to help you. His name is the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit comes and helps you and teaches you how to, how to build the things in your house properly. What structures to put in place. And not only that, he comes with a manual. And that manual is called the Bible. And that Bible teaches you and helps you to know, okay, there's things in your house that you need to do in order to make it flourish. I'm going to help you to have an extension. I'm going to help you to build a loft extension. I'm going to help you to paint your walls in the proper color it should. Because God has a purpose for you and a plan for you. But you would only know that until you come to him. So we just hope that you've been blessed. And we hope that you would uh, just come to Jesus and understand his love and compassion. In Jesus' name, amen.